0: Welcome to Weird Studies, an art and philosophy podcast with hosts Phil Ford and J.F. Martel. For more episodes and to support the podcast, go to weirdstudies.com. So, yeah, I've been looking forward to this one. Yeah? How yeah. Fun? I just, I love Heraclitus. I love talking about Heraclitus. It feels like he, uh, like like there are no experts on
1: Heraclitus, so. Yeah, that's a good point. Um, there's something to be said for a philosopher of whom almost nothing remains. Yeah, and yet, <laughs> who is so
0: present in those fragments, you know. I do think something very alive comes out of the fragments. In fact, I have this kind of like, magical theory about Heraclitus and about about the way certain thinkers or poets get to us. Like Heraclitus exists only in fragments, but there's something appropriate about that. Something about his philosophy makes it so that it can only kind of be expressed in fragments. And maybe that's an effect my impression is just an effect of the fragmentary nature of his work but either way that's all we've got so like there's something about his non-totalizing vision that makes it appropriate that all we would get are these like little missives from the from the fog of time that would come to us through some kind of serendipitous process that preserves them like there's something cool about that I get the same feeling when I look at the the Bible, you know, which was actually not a book, but a library of books collated, put together over time by, like, semi-haphazardly by different groups of priests, you know, over centuries and centuries. And yet, when you look at it, it all fucking works. You know, like, when I remember reading Northrop Fry's uh, The Great Code and Words with Power and just marveling at the connections he found embedded in these texts... And you can get that from reading pretty much any good theology, is that there's something haphazard and arbitrary about the Bible, but there's also something cohesive and visionary about the thing as a whole. And I find the same thing in an opposite sense is happening with Heraclitus, which is very fragmentary, but in the rifts between the fragments, the gaps between the fragments those spaces, those, those lacunae, they speak volumes about the philosophy itself, and they, they kind of infuse into Heraclitus's vision of kind of abiding darkness, which I find very present in the fragments themselves and what he's talking about when he's talking about soul and
1: night and uh, depths, you know? So, so you there's... find that the fragmentary nature of Heraclitus's utterances itself contributes a feeling of darkness to them?
0: Yeah, and not only that, but I think that the fragmentary nature of his work completes his work instead of fragmenting it. I think that it's completed in its fragmentariness. Like, that's the magic part of my theory. I find that if we had his entire writings, we wouldn't have the Heraclitus we have, and the Heraclitus we have is more than good enough, but could only (laughs) be conveyed through
1: fragments. That's a cool idea. Maybe we should start off with some kind of systematic overview. All right. So today we've decided to
0: discuss a philosopher whose work is dear to both of us. I think Phil, right? Like, you yeah. Would you consider Heraclitus to, an important
1: to, to, to the degree that I understand him? Yes.
0: Right. Yeah. And and as we said before we started, I mean, although there are experts on Heraclitus, in a sense, there are no experts on Heraclitus. <laughs> you know. Yeah. Um, because his work exists only in fragments. There is an elusive quality to his philosophy, a a trickiness to it that we're going to try to dive into and explore, Uh, then make him just kind of like perfect to discuss on a show like this, where we're looking for rifts and gaps and and mysteries. So I think it's going to be fun and it'll enable us to uh, explore certain themes we've kind of discussed before, but also maybe bringing some new things.
1: Now, one thing that we've talked about in this show is our... Enjoyment of divination and the use of random processes to generate meaningful utterances. And, JF, you had the idea of doing something similar here, using polyhedral dice to determine a random order of fragments, or random order by which we will discuss these fragments. Are we doing that? That's right.
0: Yeah, we are doing it, except that I've X-nayed the polyhedral dice because I couldn't figure out a way to do it that would truly allow for a really kind of like evened out randomness over 139 fragments. It's just a weird number. And I don't have a 139 sided die, but I do have a Google number generator, which in which you can choose the range of numbers. So I can Ah, have one that precisely will select numbers between one and 139, 139. And that'll enable us to be truly random and fair to all the fragments, because what we're going to do today, basically the idea is that we're just going to randomly select uh, fragments from Heraclitus's work, and we're going to talk about them in light of our own ideas, and in light of our idea of Heraclitus, what we think he was up to, and also what we—I think what's important is what what we want him to be up to, because <laughs> Heraclitus is one of those great gnomic writers whose words can be interpreted in many different ways, and they they refract on multiple levels, so it's fun to think of him in new contexts, or to apply him to new things and see what what happens. He's kind of like
1: a a human I Ching in, the, in this way, you know? You know, yeah. I, I thought of the I Ching repeatedly as I was, cons- uh, I've noticed the verb, consult, uh, I was consulting Heraclitus. Yeah. One in particular, okay, so this is fragment 41 by the kind of canonical numbering? It's like B41. B I've got the, the first philosophers, the pre-Socratics, and the sophists, translated by Robin Waterfield. This is released by Oxford World's Classics. But his fragment three, which is the same as, I think, fragment 41, this is how he translates it. The one wise thing is to know, in sound judgment, how everything is guided in every case this is a secondary quotation this is from diogenes laertus lives of eminent philosophers so this is paraphrasing a passage from a book by heraclitus that's or at least what is believed to be a complete book that heraclitus wrote that existed in the ancient world but that has not survived to the modern day so this is a as with most of these fragments they're all kind of reported speech rather than direct speech right Now, I don't know what the uh, what's the what's the translation of that same fragment in the verse, the version you have, which I think is the public domain translation.
0: Uh, I'm actually using the source text for the Wikisource page on Heraclitus. And I like this PDF I found because it has the English translation, the Burnett translation, which I think is pretty much standard. Yeah. 1912, I believe. And then there's a uh, French translation. And I don't read Greek, so the Greek looks like nothing to me, but the French I can read. So it's been interesting to have those two languages in front of me so I can kind of read both of those and try to see how they how they work together. So yes. my fragment 41... It's like, stereos- it's like getting stereoscopic vision. Exactly. Um, and my fragment 41 reads, Wisdom is one thing. It is to know the thought by which all things are steered through all things.
1: And I really okay. love that translation. Oh, that's really good. Yeah. It is to know the thought by which all things are steered through all things. So it is the last part of that that really sticks out in me. The, all things steered through all things. And I'm looking at the translation I have, how everything is guided in every case. If you think back to the episode we did on Dungeons & Dragons, and I was talking about how there's a kind of symmetry in Dungeons & Dragons between the DM, the Dungeon Master, and the players, and they're each responsible for kind of a different sphere of the metaphysical arena, even though their spheres touch one another, they cross, they intersect. But I was saying that the... Dungeon Master is the master of the way things go, just how things befall, right? And how things befall, the way things go, is an idea of changes, of process, of how things transform into other things. It is ultimately to view the world under the aspect of process, where the solidity and individuality, independence of things begins to wear away because you start seeing things as components of processes that run basically for all time and blend one into the other. And the I Ching to me is the great book on the way things go. It is a book that has been devised to give you a structure by which you can read this exceedingly broad, Basic elemental aspect of existence, so elemental, so broad, so basic that we contrive not even to see it, not even to notice the stream of which we are a part. And if we go with that metaphor, a stream metaphor, if you ever sit down by a shallow stream where the water is very clear and it's flowing at a very even rate, you can look down and you could be like, I can't even tell if there's a current. I can't tell if the water is moving. But if you grab a stick and you poke it into the water, you'll see eddies around the stick and you'll realize that the water is indeed moving. But you didn't realize it till you poked the stick in, right? The I Ching is like that, but for life. You know, the the whole of life itself is this stream constantly moving and shifting And that seems like a kind of Heraclitian image, and I'm sure we'll come back to the image of the stream later. But the point is that we don't notice it. Like, your life is just one fucking thing after another. You know, like, what is the day that you've enjoyed so far? I ask that to the listeners, the folks at home. Well, whatever day you've had, wherever it is you're listening to this, maybe you're listening to this at the gym or in the car or something... You know, you just kind of go about your day. I'm like, well, I'm in the car. And this is an instance of every other goddamn time I've been in the car on my morning commute. So you might be inclined to think of that situation as being stock, like just an off-the-rack stock situation. An instance, a unit, almost like you walk into a grocery store and you see all these identical cans on the shelf. This commute is like one One, of those identical cans yeah and the thing is you made a point earlier about how the i ching and other forms of divination are excellent ways of us not just thinking but knowing experientially that there is no situation that presents itself to us as stock every situation however often repeated has its own presence its own particularity its own uniqueness And what my point is that the I Ching is like that stick you poke into the water. This is how you can kind of touch the processes of life and feel them moving and know that it is a moving stream and that you're a part of it. But that moving scene is so broad and all encompassing because it's like everything, it's the way things go that normally you would never, it would never occur to you. And yet it's the biggest, most obvious fact in the world, this process that we're all a part of, to say that the most important thing to know, the most important aspect of philosophy is to grasp that. Yeah. I I agree. I I, I like that. And that is one way in which actually I feel like reading Heraclitus— really does remind me of the I Ching. I think that Heraclitus is interested, at least the fragments we have, what they do. I don't know what he's interested in doing. I'm going to have to give up on trying to attribute intention um, to somebody who's almost a complete cipher. But I can tell you what it does for me. For me, it gives me that sense of poking that stick in the water and feeling the living, moving, rippling, flowing processes of life.
0: Yeah. When I read Heraclitus... I really get that feeling that I'm reading the words of someone who is seeing it, who is trying to express the one thought by which all things are steered. And I get the same sense when I'm reading Lao Tzu's you know, Dao Te Ching, or the I Ching for that matter, or the, when I look at the tarot. The mysteriousness, that kind of gnomic quality of these images or words or what have you, call us into a kind of soulful contemplation of a darkness underlying the luminous events of the everyday a kind of like a darker light within things that is present and when you were talking just there i I realized you know in moments in your life when this big change happens or you get this big idea or this new development and then you look back and you go whoa everything was moving towards this So like all these quote unquote stock little situations piling up one on top of the other or following each other, one another in this seemingly random series of chaotic whatevers was actually just this stream guiding you towards something. Or at least that's the sense you get when you look back. You know, when I think about my wife, it's. Insane! How I can sense immediately, at a very profound level, how a series of events that led up to our meeting and eventually to to having kids and marrying, how how these things are all connected. How these seemingly random and disconnected little events were actually conspiring at a deep level to bring a new thing into being. You know, fate. Fate is a huge theme in Heraclitus, and and sometimes in life you can feel the hand of fate at work behind the scenes. You could just dismiss that as an illusion, a kind of like optical effect of just random happenings, just you know, trying your and your mind's trying to bring them into a cohesive whole, or you could say there's something to it and there's something going on there, and that's what Heraclitus certainly thinks. That's why this this uh, this fragment is so interesting because he's basically saying that. Wisdom or gnosis or true knowledge is the fact of being able to think with the cosmos and to align one's thoughts with that one thought by which things happen, and yes. um, and that's definitely what the I Ching's about and the various layers of commentary within the I Ching. You know, Confucius and all. That's their goal is to align the the individual with the cosmic so that there's a certain harmony there and that you can make shit happen when you're in harmony in this way.
1: Well, I mean, this is getting back to magic, which we, Mm -hmm. you know, we recently released our episode on Crowley and magic, the old hermetic axiom from the emerald tablet of Hermes Trismegistus, as above, so below, that magical motto is basically what you're talking about. The idea, a venerable idea of the Western esoteric tradition, of the Western mysteries, that the human being, the illuminated human being, creates in herself a perfect mirror of the outer universe. That, that the individual becomes almost like a perfectly polished, perfectly spherical mirror ball mm-hmm. that reflects perfectly everything around it. You're at the center of the universe and the universe is reflected in you. That you create in your mind a kind of perfect scale model of the macrocosm, or you raise yourself to the level of the macrocosm through spiritual practices of purification and knowledge or whatever. Actually, this brings up one last thing I want to say before maybe we can start doing the random number generating, which is saying that Heraclitus is somebody that we have assimilated to the history of philosophy. We we call him a philosopher. And yet here we are and maybe that's just because it's, that's our answer to everything. We're bringing in magic and talking about Hermes Trismegistus and blah, blah, blah. And somebody might say, well, that's not philosophy. That's something else. Maybe it belongs to spirituality or maybe it belongs to religion. Or I could point out similarities between some of Heraclitus's ideas and, for example, Dogen Zenji, the medieval Japanese Zen philosopher who I think our next recording, we're going to record an episode on his essay, Genjo Koan. So that guy, Dogen, we say, oh, he belongs to religion, right? These are all conventional categories that we've used in the last three, 400 years to divide up cognitive space. Mm-hmm. Some things belong to philosophy. Other things belong to religion. And Heraclitus belongs to philosophy. But Pythagoras is maybe the obvious example of a philosopher who is as much a a religious figure as he was a philosophical or mathematical one. I wonder if there is a kind of indeterminate line between what we call philosophy and what we're apt to call religion or spirituality. And that line is particularly indeterminate in the work of the pre-Socratics or maybe just the Greek philosophers. There's a French philosopher, Pierre Ardault who wrote a book called What is Ancient Philosophy, which is retelling the history of ancient philosophy, mostly from the point of view that what we call philosophy are really the remnants of a practice of gnosis, a Mm. a practice of knowledge that if somebody just started doing it anew today, we would probably look at that and say, oh, that looks like a new religious movement, or that looks like some kind of new age cult. yes let's all right uh
0: first number here we go i wish i had a like a a, one of those bingo things (laughs) (laughs) well
1: then you'd have the sound effect yeah (laughs) this is where we need that soundboard right (laughs) yeah number 45
0: you will not find the boundaries of soul by traveling in any direction Mm. I've got a couple of alternative translations of that one from James Hillman, which I'll just read out, and they'll they'll just open up the space a bit. Hillman translates it as follows: "You could not find the ends of the soul, though you traveled every way. So deep is its logos."
1: This reminds me of a line from Dogen Zenji's Genjo Koan, which I just mentioned: "A fish swims in the ocean, and no matter how far it swims." There is no end to the water. A bird flies in the sky, and no matter how far it flies, there is no end to the air. However, the fish and the bird have never left their elements. When their activity is large, their field is large. When their need is small, their field is small. Thus, each of them totally covers its full range, and each of them totally experiences its realm. If the bird leaves the air, it will die at once. If the fish leaves the water, it will die at once. Know that water is life and air is life. The bird is life and the fish is life. Life must be the bird and life must be the fish. Okay, so now I am now I have to try and say what these puzzling words mean and how they relate to these other puzzling words by Heraclitus. Yeah, thanks, man. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it just wasn't difficult right, enough, right, right. right? Just not obscure enough. So one thing we've talked about already is Thinking a little bit of, in a meta way about what philosophy is. Is philosophy assimilable to some other activity like religion? Something that you have said to me, and I know I've read other people saying this, that they read philosophy as if it's poetry. The thing that these two texts have in common is that idea of there being something, some fundamental principle of life, or principle of the self, or possibly both, that the moment you go looking for it, when you try to find it, you can't find it. It's everywhere. It's all pervading. It is the very medium of your life, just as water is a medium for fishes and air is a medium for birds. And yet, you try to find it. It's right everywhere and nowhere. Like you can never, you could never come to the end. You could never touch the limits. You never find the edge. That's
0: excellent. Let's call that the negative reading of this line. Okay, negative in a good way, in the sense that it's like you'll never find soul. You'll look for it and you won't find it. The way I read it was you can dive into your soul and you will find an infinite space, that there's an infinite space within just as there is an infinite space without. Oh, so it's just a yeah. Different, see, this is the great thing. Like,
1: that's interesting that you read it this other way. So, yeah. But, you know, the th- funny thing is, as I was saying that I read it, like, that's a reading. You know what it is? Like, before I even opened my mouth to say what I thought, I didn't know what it meant. It mm-hmm. just made, gave me a feeling, like a line of poetry. It just yeah. made me feel something. And then I tried to put that in terms of some right. kind of logic, you know, and and now that I've got those words out of my mouth, I'm like, yeah, that sounds right. <laughs> but, you know, that's like a, an approximation of some, of like a little movement in my soul that I felt reading those words. Exactly. Does that make any sense? Absolutely
0: makes sense. In fact, the paragraph that follows the one from which I just read there, when I read from James Hillman's The Dream in the Underworld, in the paragraph that follows, he talks about the inherently poetic nature of all language, scientific language included. So so I'll just read this because it touches on what you just said. It's, he says, this is James Hillman, Here we see that the metaphors we believe we choose for describing archetypal processes and ideas, such as Freud's, quote, unconscious and Bluler's depth psychology, are inherently part of those very processes and ideas themselves. It is as if the archetypal material chooses its own descriptive terms as one aspect of its self-expression. And wh- wh- what Hillman's doing in this is like, let's read Freud, but let's honor the metaphorical nature of Freud's language. So when Freud talks about the unconscious as this dark place, the dream as a road into it, these geographical metaphors that Freud uses to describe what is essentially a psychological model of the psyche are key. They're inherently Part of the concept themselves. This is why I read poetry as philosophy. I read philosophy as poetry. It's that the images that accompany any philosophical term, like Kierkegaard's leap, right? The leap in Kierkegaard, or Nietzsche's tightrope walker. You know, the images that are required to express ideas that seem to be purely conceptual are actually part of the concepts. That the concepts don't exist without these archetypal images. They form uh, the material from which concepts are shaped. This is interesting because it completely dissolves the line, any type of absolute boundary between philosophy, poetry, art, myth. That the language of images, the language of the soul, of psyche, is essential to all kind of like viable communication, all all valuable expression. Like that you can't express an idea without also recounting a dream, you know? And, that's fascinating. And, and that's kind of what Heraclitus is getting at when he talks about soul, like uh, psyche is the the Greek word. Psyche is a place that when you turn towards it, it doesn't disappear. It opens up into infinite depths. And there are layers and layers of images that come forward as you look into, if, if you, you look into an idea with the eyes of the soul, as Hillman would put it, or through your, through the, in the light of the night world, he would say, as opposed to the day world of cold rationality, that, that all this cold rationality is like a little island floating atop these infinite depths of soul and that that value and and moment the moment the momentousness of an idea comes from those depths and not from some kind of rational deduction
1: happening on the surface or here's another way of thinking about it i don't know if this quite fits but i'll try it there's a philosopher named mark johnson who wrote a book called the meaning of the body and it makes a radical claim that all cognition all human thought including The stuff we think of as pure reason, like higher mathematics or whatever, ultimately owes its origin to the body, to a knowing that is always an incorporeal, embodied kind of thinking. The the example that comes to mind is actually how you get to abstract principle of logic, which is the principle of transitivity. Mm -hmm. Um, If A equals B and B equals C, then A equals C. Johnson comes up with the example of holding a stone in your hand and then putting your hand in your pocket. Well, the stone is in my hand and my hand is in my pocket. Where's the stone? Well, the stone is in my pocket, too. Now, Johnson isn't trying to come up with a just so story to account for how somebody got the idea of transitivity. He just wants to point out that things that belong to the realm of a seemingly disembodied and bloodless reason... Nevertheless, the fact that we have these ideas at all is because we have them as fully corporeal beings. These ideas, however abstract they can become, they can lift us out of the realm of the corporeal into some very lofty cognitive realms, but they still always mean what they mean because they come from our experience as bodied creatures. Even things like the principle of transitivity. And so to get back to what you're saying about philosophy, you talked about these little islands of rationality in a great dark sea of soul. But we could say almost that those little islands of rationality are the product of that ocean. The ocean The ocean makes those things. They're all part of one From a certain point of view, one substance. That's exactly what I was trying to say. I I totally agree with you.
0: I love this about the body. Deleuze towards the end was talking a lot about the body and about in Spinoza, because Spinoza basically affirms the body as this this kind of like interface that's inherently unknowable. You know, Spinoza, one part in the Ethics says we do not know what a body is capable of. In in fact, like yeah, we're just bodies, but we don't know what the fuck bodies are. Like <laughs> for example, the astral body, right? When mm-hmm. you dream, you develop according to theosophy and nineteenth century occultism, and it's I, I'm I'm not trying to date it. I I believe this there's truth to this that you you gain an astral body in your dreams or when you project into the astral plane, right? Whatever that means, is that. A body's a mysterious thing, and they've done experiments like how you people seem to know when they're being watched, even though they can't see the person watching them. They feel it, you feel it in your body. I find when I take walks and i don't I don't have a destination, I'm just like you know sauntering about uh Vanier where I live, which is a very beautiful lovecraftian place i find um so I'm wandering about this place, and my body knows where to go but what organ is it? I mean, is it my liver? Is it my, you know, like <laughs> there's something, it's not in my, of course it's in my brain, but it's in my nervous system, but there's something about, it's, it's very, um, deep down in the body that, that I feel this, oh, I'm going to go down that street. I find, I call it the cursor. There's like this cursor that's going around and determining my, my trajectory as I, as I choose it. And, uh, as I, as I go through it. So, the body is a strange thing, and uh, I think it's completely true that you can't, obviously can't come up with, um, I mean, geometry is completely predicated on sense perception, and especially sight, the sense of sight, and the eye as part of the body. So how the eye functions is a huge part, um, had a huge part to play in developing the way we we intellect, the way that we think about abstract ideas, you know, in terms of perspective and distance and depth and proportion. There's a, a geometrical quality to conceptual thinking and philosophy that is completely owed to our visual culture and our, the visual apparatus in the human body. So yeah, that's that's a really interesting... And, and I find that there's a connection between... Like spirit, to me, the word spirit evokes ideas of abstraction, disembodiness, loftiness, moving up towards the ether whereas the word soul to me feels very much about the body the earth the what is what is heavy what sinks down into the depths so this turning towards the body is interestingly appropriate in in the context of this particular fragment we just read all right let's do another one all right let's do another one number nine okay in my translation number nine Well, uh, this is a simple one. Asses would rather have straw than gold.
1: (laughs) Yeah, he has a few that are like this, right? There's also one of like, you know, pigs prefer slop and human beings prefer clean water. Um, Yeah. Yeah, so so those fragments, either they're a bunch of, well, shit, what do I know? I don't know anything about the philology of this. It's possible that, all these ancient authors who are reporting at second hand things that they remember Heraclitus writing, you know, they might all be remembering the same point and just expressing it in slightly different words. So they appear like different fragments. Or maybe he is just really exercised by this idea that human beings and animals will want entirely different things out of life. Well, I think, I think that's, there's like, there
0: are two possible readings here. One is asses would rather have straw than gold. You could anthropomorphize it and say, what he's saying is that stupid people don't know what's valuable. So don't cast pearls before swine. Another reading is, well, asses can eat straw and they can't eat gold. Therefore, they're right to seek straw rather than gold. In other yeah. words, in other words, value is a function of the body, <laughs> strangely enough. Of the yeah. value is a function of your embodiment that... What things mean to you is very much connected to how you are configured. So to an ass, straw is gold,
1: you know? That's right. Um, I found although, another of the yeah. fragments that is uh, similar to that one. This is fragment 61 in your translation. In mine, it's fragment 15. C water most pure and most tainted, drinkable and wholesome for fish, but undrinkable and poisonous for people. And that doesn't seem to be the pearls before swine thing. Or if it is, it's not a very good figure for it. But I kind of like this idea that you could manifest as any number of things. You could have been a fish. You know, you're a person. You could have been a fish or a bag of potatoes or fuck, I don't know. But like the point is, like, whatever contingency of manifestation, whatever accidents of form, That you've taken, there is a mode of life, a conduct of life that is proper for that situation. So to me, I mean, when I read this, I sort of think, well, this is Heraclitus being way ahead of the game. He's being Darwin. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. Well, that's one way of looking at it. Yeah. But to me, he's just being really ahead of the game and sort of realizing that any kind of philosophical baffle gab about what is best for all human beings everywhere. Uh, a vain search for human universals, you know, something the postmoderns are very apt to say mm-hmm. is, to, well, to, to deny that there are any human universals, I think maybe sometimes taking that a little bit far, but like in the, instead just saying like all is contingency. Right. It's just like different ways that we are born into this world and, you know, you're going to experience it very differently if, for example, you're a black person from Ferguson uh, right. As opposed to a white college professor in Bloomington, Indiana, you're necessarily going to have different perspectives afforded by that. And so a kind of universalizing thing, where we're like, well, the kind of music that we should all listen to, the kind of books, literature, the kind of education to which we should all aspire, the moral values, the religion that, you know, there's always a tendency to sort of think there's one right way to be a person. Right. And perhaps you can look at this as a kind of a almost relativist utterance. Saying, like, no, you know, actually to say that there's one best way to be a person, one best form of expression of you know, whatever, is to ignore the fundamentally plural aspect of right. manifestation. Right. The fact that, like, yeah, you, you, when you're talking about universals, you're talking about these abstract ideals. But in the flesh, if we manifest in this world, then we are stuck among, to put it in Buddhist terms, the the 10,000 things right you're you're stuck among all of the miscellany of material manifestation and if you if that's the realm that you occupy then you're going to have to accept this kind of fundamental epistemic pluralism Shall we do another
0: yeah, one? Yeah, let's do another one. This is funny. One ten. All right. Heraclitean bingo. Um, <laughs> so one ten is. Oh, I only have it in French. In um, French, it's "Il n'est pas préférable pour les hommes de devenir ce qu'ils, veulent, ce qu'ils veulent." It is not preferable for men to become what they want. Oh, I guess that speaks exactly to what we were just saying. <laughs>
1: <laughs> <laughs> yeah, there's another well, translation here. It says,
0: "Il vaudrait pas mieux pour les hommes qu'il ce It is not best for for men to experience
1: what they wish. Hmm. Yeah. So, so okay. So, how do you in, interpret that? I mean, partly because we are coming from where we just came from in our conversation, talking about the different ways that you might manifest. Right. And uh, my first thought is to interpret this line in terms of that. It's not good for somebody to manifest in a manner they choose. Presumably, the aim of philosophy here would be, well, to get back to the very first fragment we were talking about, to understand the the way things go. The wisdom is knowing the, the, the course of things, uh, how things are steered through things. Yeah. And... I'm going to guess, okay, I'm gonna just going to imagine that what Heraclitus wants is for us as philosophic individuals to understand that the world kind of has its own way that it goes, to have preferences, to want to manifest in a particular way, that that is to be in a sense unphilosophic because it's just like rather than being able to stand back and with some equanimity survey the true situation that we're all born into, which I suppose, given enough equanimity, you can handle the limitations and sorrows of, you know, manifesting in the world that we live in. But by expressing preferences, you are pulling yourself out of that. But then again, as I'm saying this, it just turned, it seems to me, I'm turning Heraclitus into a Buddhist that's probably well, not quite you, that's probably not quite the thing. You wouldn't be the first.
0: And I think the wisdom is wisdom, whether you're in India or China or Greece. I think that's what he's getting at. There's a very strong kind of Taoist
1: thing going on in here that I don't think we're reading into it. I think it's there. It is now. <laughs> it is now. <laughs> that's I mean that's the thing about interpretation also, it's like you never interpret without leaving footprints. You know what I mean? It's just like your interpretation actually changes the thing you're interpreting. And when you put the idea out there, that becomes part of the sum total of actions that people have taken on a text. So now that we've interpreted that, like in some little way, we've added to the great gummy mass of secondary and tertiary and quaternary interpretations of you know interpretations on Heraclitus and interpretations on the interpretations and, right. and so on ad infinitum. It, it reminds me of the Tao Te Ching. What you just said—that in order to get what you want,
0: you need to let go of how you think that thing should come. It touches on magic too. Like you put out you, what you want is not what you think it is, or yep. at least if you were to get it the way you're envisioning it, it wouldn't feel like you think it would feel. It's like people who win the lottery and then regret it a year later because it's fucked up their whole lives, you know? <laughs> Seriously, like yeah. like people win. They've done studies on this, you know? People win like $30 million and then they, you know, they're practically suicidal after a few years. Um, yeah. So, yeah, it's not always good to get what you want. Fairly simple, straightforward. Let's pick another one. 14. All right. So 14. Oh, I like this one. 14. Nightwalkers, Magians, priests of Bacchus, and priestesses of the wine vat, mystery mongers among men. I don't know the context, but I like the images, man. Nightwalkers? Holy shit. Magians are those... uh, I think they're those Persian wizards, right? The Magians, Mm -hmm. the Magi? Priests of Bacchus and priestesses of the wine vat. Those would be the the Bacchantes, the, the priestesses of Dionysus. They are... Mystery mongers, so they're they're selling mysteries. I like that it's non-judgmental. It feels like, in one sense, it feels like he's dismissing them all, and saying they're all full of shit. But in another sense, he's just kind of observing. Oh yeah, they're the ones who provide the mysteries. <laughs> <You
1: know>? <laughs> <laughs> That's their job, right?
0: So uh, I'm gonna in French, Rôdeurs de la nuit. I like that. Les mages, les bacans, les laines, les mystes. Yeah, so it's, it's just a list. An enumeration of, of people that, that would love weird studies. Um, <laughs> number twenty two, 122. Did you have anything to say about that one? Nope. No, okay. Um, number 122. Oh, yeah. Uh, it's actually number 123, but number, when 122 is only in Greek, so I'll just skip to 123, and that is Nature Loves to Hide, which we've brought up ah. before in this show. Um, Yeah. Nature loves to hide. Hillman translates it as the real constitution of each thing is accustomed to hide itself. And then he specifies that it's also translated nature loves to hide. So in other words, he's going back to the idea. I think that the word for nature in Greek is physis, physis, uh, Mm -hmm. P-H-Y-S-I-S, where we get the word physics, physical. Um, Mm -hmm. And it means the real constitution of things. So the in itself of things loves to hide. That really is
1: really relevant to us in light of our episode on Harmon's third table. Absolutely. That's exactly what I was going to say. Um, Something that we talked about there is the sense that you can't handle the unadorned object. You know, you can't handle it. Remember... Dave Hickey's line, there's always a reason not to show naked people. There's always a reason not to show the object or not, not to truly reveal the object or present the object. Um, right. And by object, I, I'm using object in Harmon's sense, like, you know, yeah. armies are objects and a divorce is an object and, you know, that right. sort of thing. Uh, leprechauns. Yeah. Leprechauns are objects. Um, there's also the idea that that idea of, of masks
0: all the way down. That yes. this is something I love about Heraclitus is that there is nothing beyond appearances. Appearances are what the world is made of, images is what the world is made of. But you can look into an appearance and it'll, it'll reveal its own infinite depth. It's like there's only surface, but the surface is the gateway into the deep, right? Like the, you can right. peel back appearances forever and get more and more and more connections. There's another fragment where he says um, the hidden harmony is more important than the visible harmony. The hidden harmony being what's hidden behind the appearance, but you don't get behind the appearance by negating the appearance as you would in a transcendental system, in a transcendent system where, like in Plato, where you negate the appearance in the name of the idea. What Heraclitus is saying is that the appearance is the idea, but the idea is infinitely deep. So you can keep digging into it and wherever you look, it'll become more and more complex and fractal and open up uh, like a dream, you know?
1: Yes. Um, yeah. You know, the thing the thing is that the there's a line of Oscar Wilde's from Dorian Gray that seems relevant in this context where he says where he puts these words in the mouth of one of his characters, is only superficial people who do not judge by appearances. The true mystery of the world is in the visible, not the invisible. Yes. Which Although I may be the first person, at least in a while, to put Oscar Wilde and Zen Buddhism in the same room, nevertheless, it does remind me of a like a sort of a Zen slogan, nothing is hidden. It's like the anti-esoteric statement, right? If an esotericist is telling you that the truth of the universe is hidden and mysterious and strange, and you need to cultivate strange practices in order to pierce the veil of appearances, Right. That's not the hiddenness that Zen Buddhists are after. They say nothing is hidden. But there clearly is some reason why you need to spend your whole life in meditation, why you need to spend all your time practicing, why if the nature of the world is, if it's blatant, if it's all out there, if nothing truly is hidden... Why do we need to help understanding it? Yet we do, because there's just something about the world. Even if you say that the truth of the world is in its appearance, it, the world is a fact that is given to us. It's the only fact we'll ever know. And it's the job of philosophy to make sense of the world that we have and not some ideal world that you just were able to conjure up from thought. Right, right. Exactly.
0: That I think which
1: that... by the, which, by the way, is why Nietzsche exempts Heraclitus from his otherwise pretty stinging condemnation of Socrates and the Socratics, mm-hmm. because Nietzsche says this isn't Twilight of the Gods. Uh, Heraclitus alone did not mistrust the evidence of his senses. Right. 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 And yet, and yet, you can trust your senses. You can you can have this kind of like. This uh, approach to the world that proceeds from the fact of your embodiment and your position within the world. And yet it will still hide from you. It still runs away from you. Somebody, it might be. Oh, shit. Not James Hillman. Fucking Patrick Harper. Might be Patrick Harper who said this. It might be someone else. Maybe like Robert Anton Wilson. Anyway, somebody said this. It's kind of funny that you, the history of science in the 19th and 20th centuries of developing insight into tinier and tinier spaces, right? And pursuing the old Greek philosophic dream of discovering the elementary unit of everything, the elementary unit of matter. What's the smallest particle that exists? Um You know, atom comes from a Greek word meaning indivisible, right? What's the indivisible thing? And we find atoms. And we're like, woo, we found it. Oh, wait, no, because atoms are made of smaller things. And then we're like, "Okay, well, those, oh, no, not those smaller things, because it turns out that those are, in fact, made up of things that are smaller yet. And as we have been going deeper and deeper into smaller and smaller scales of existence, we end up in this weird state of an antiodromia or reversal where we started off just trying to find the fundamental physical material element of the universe, and what we ended up with is seeing material just disappear, matter disappears, and all we're left with is math right and so like the triumphal narrative of science was just waiting to be you know we're, somebody was just waiting to write the last sentence of that with a flourish of a quill pen and yet they never got to because it's just sort of like okay we're waiting to find the, the final unit of material existence and then when we guessed, when we got there it wasn't there not only was
0: not only thinking about it poetically or imagistically what happened the atom basically opens up into this the only way you can conceptualize the subatomic world is by conceptualizing it in terms of vast vast space so it actually gets bigger as you go down into the words of the smaller it's like an Alice in Wonderland thing, yes, right, like the smaller things get, the bigger the space gets, so that in order to to visualize an atom, you have to imagine this immense space with these electrons and stuff like spread out over huge distances, and um the atomic world opens up into this huge interior kind of dark world that is present in every parcel of this one it's like. It's like it's a beautiful yeah. kind of uh, Lewis Carroll kind of thing that happens with modern science, and it has its uh, hubristic, funny side of like, wow! They, not only did they not find it, they actually destroyed the idea of it. Right? <laughs> but exactly. But at the same time, is there's a beauty to that if you could just embrace absolute mystery or absolute unknowability or at least the idea that all knowledge as real as it is is always partial is never complete is never final then there's a a wonderful poetic beauty to the the development of modern science and the way that it it opens up these new vistas of space you know i've often thought of lovecraft as lovecraft's monsters as just basically he all he does is he plays with scale and he took germs who are the demons of the modern world and gave them these huge proportions because <laughs> it's true like viruses are Infinitely older than humans, right? And yeah. Not, if you not, if you see if yeah. if you
1: see a picture of like a water bear, yeah, it they, just looks terrifying. They look like until you realize it's smaller than a speck of dust. And you're like, okay, well, I, I could take that.
0: And they are great old ones too. Like they are the great old ones. These these microbes that have been
1: around. For, you know, yeah. Here's a callback to our Philip K. Dick episode. We spent a lot of time in that episode talking about simulation theory, the idea that everything is a simulation. Mm-hmm. This idea of nature almost visibly recoiling from our gaze as we follow it into the innermost recesses, into the tiniest spaces. One bit of, not I won't say evidence, but something to be said in favor of the simulation theory is that as we look within at tiny scales and we look out from the world at vast scales of space, that the universe becomes progressively more paradoxical and kind of not really sketched in yeah yeah that it it's almost as if we're in a simulation where they programmed the computer to give us as much as we need they didn't so ex- like, you know they didn't
0: expect could... us to get this far right
1: exactly yeah. you wanna go back to heraclitus's day then you don't need to even worry about germs but then you know leo uh, who's the dude who Discovered germs Lehoek or some shit? Uh, I don't know. I don't know. I confess. I can't remember grade nine science. So (laughs) Me neither. I got thirty-five (laughs) percent, I think.
0: (laughs) (laughs) No, that was grade ten. That That was
1: grade ten science.
0: (laughs) In the end he passed me, my my teacher passed me and he said, I don't want to see you
1: again. I'll just pass you. (laughs) I'm just imagining you with like a a pack of smokes rolled up in your white t shirt. (laughs) Just sitting at the back of science, just like giving this guy so much shit that he is like, okay, look, asshole. Yeah. If I give you a passing grade, I never want to see your face again.
0: That's what happened, except there was a (laughs) tie-dye (laughs) t-shirt.
1: Actually, I like the idea that in Vanier, it would be guys wearing tie-dye t-shirts. They would still have the pack of cigarettes rolled up in the sleeve. Oh,
0: definitely. Definitely except that those you can't do that in in canada the packs back then the packs of smokes were huge they were so big that they provided a calendar on the back of them like (laughs) oh wow a callback i had forgotten about those yeah they were huge. so so you kept i kept my pack of smokes in my handy shoulder pouch in which i also kept my crystals and my uh, i remember an old tattered copy of plato's republic this is me in grade 10 and um and a, a bone.
1: I, I don't know. Anyways. Yeah. I kept it in there in my Merce. <laughs> I feel like, okay. we're If I ask you about the bone, I know it's going to take us further away from Heraclitus. <laughs> Maybe we should just flag that for a future yeah. show. <laughs> we should have a we're show. We're just going to th- <laughs> throw that out as, as a teaser for the folks at home. Yeah. What was the bone? Like episode what 20, mean?
0: episode 20, the contents of JF's teenage hippie bag.
1: Um, <laughs> so, what was that? I was oh I was talking about like simulation theory right and, right yeah it's like basically unfinished. that the the universe is acting sort of the way it would if you were kind of sneaking up on it surprising it or like okay let's look at yet smaller scale like oh shit um I don't know make some strings or something that'll yeah. keep them busy
0: well that would go with the the theory we played with in that that episode on Dick about the universe being made of story like like in yeah. order in order to write the hunchback of notre dame like victor hugo didn't need to understand how to like how to like make mortar and how you know how how to how to build a cathedral <laughs> it's true yeah he, you just need to know enough to get by like if you're going to write a novel about a surgeon you might want to do a bit of research to know the you know just to have the lingo a bit the sense but you certainly don't need to be a surgeon you can get by with a little bit so in order to a story only requires as much technical information as is required to move things along so you know maybe whatever god made this universe didn't expect us to get that far and now we've like broken through like the back lot you know facades of buildings and we're (laughs) looking at the boards at the back going oh that's not a fucking saloon that's just like a (laughs) it's a a flat it's just a flat yeah so yeah (laughs) I, i like that idea
1: let's do another one all right so number one all right number one but of this principle which holds forever people prove ignorant not only before they hear it but also once they have heard it for although everything happens in accordance with this principle they resemble those with no familiarity with it even after they have become familiar with the kinds of accounts and events I discuss as I distinguish each thing according to its nature and explain its constitution. But the general run of people are as unaware of their actions while awake as they are of what they do while asleep. That harkens back to something we were talking about before, the sort of sense of like even when it's plain as the nose on your face, even when it's right in front of you, like, what's the secret? What's the big fucking secret? It's this right now. Like, you. Yeah, you, motherfucker. I'm talking to you. You know, you listening to this in your car. You listening to this at the gym. The reality is not between your ears, right? Yeah. I mean, it's partly between your ears, but between your ears is also part of everything else around you. The total process that you were a part of that's going on every moment that is inside you and outside that pervades you that pervades everything i can't show that to you because you're it that's that's i mean i don't know how to put it it's just sort of like you're if i want to show you that process i would just hold a mirror up to you or i could show you anything I could, like uh you know like zen teachers of old who'd like you know smack a student on the head and run away laughing and that would <laughs> and every Zen story ends with a student experiencing great enlightenment. Right. right? For right. some, and he was hit on the head, and he experienced great enlightenment. Somehow, that never happened to me. Like I, I never experienced great enlightenment. But have you ever been hit on the head hard enough? No. You <laughs> see, I think that's it. I think uh, that's why I got into boxing. I figure if I if I get clocked hard enough, then I'll attain great enlightenment. Um, it's
0: the, the logos in Heraclitus isn't a proposition or even. An idea, the logos in Heraclitus, is the fact you just outlined—that there, that this is it. Yeah. Yes, you know, and that, yeah, this right yeah. now, right,
1: wherever you are, right now, this is it. Right, thou art that. Yeah. and yet, like it's so, it's so obvious. I can't, I don't, I don't even know how to put it into words. And yet, and 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 you're never, you, can, you could never run away from this truth, even if you wanted to. There's nowhere you could go <laughs> and to run away from this. And yet, you can't look at it. And when you try to look at it, it runs away. Right.
0: Fragment uh, 16 is, how can one hide from that which never sinks to rest? Oh, yeah. In French, it's interesting. It says, qui se cachera du feu qui ne se couche pas? So he's, there's a specific reference to fire in the French. Who can hide from the fire that never rests? And this is that, it's not the light of the sun, you know, it's the light, that dark light that we mentioned earlier, that dark light of being itself, the kind of like luminosity of being itself, which is indistinguishable from incessant becoming, this absolute like constant transformation of one thing into another, the stream that you mentioned that only looks still, only looks knowable, but in fact is in constant movement. The Logos is just the contemplation of that, right? So it's like these little moments where, you know, I think we've all had, I think, I th- I've had a few moments in my life that I would say, oh, that was kind of a Satori moment where it kind of all clicked, you know? But it's you can't go back to them and you can't translate them, right? You just have to, you know, and even when you're occluded, even when you're lost in the fray of things, when you're lost in the... The business of life you're still on some level experiencing it because even that lostness is part of it
1: it's true it's true yeah and which is a really hard thing if you if you are one of those people who gets like as they say on the spiritual path is that you can get really caught up in an idea of purity and trying to remove distractions and trying to be totally dialed in uh like you know mindfulness you know mindfulness became kind of a buzzword a few years ago there was a kind of a fad and I think for a lot of people mindfulness just meant walking around and trying to be really super aware of everything that was happening yeah but that's kind of missing the point a little bit because even when you're distracted or intoxicated or just confused or sleep you are perfectly distracted, you are perfectly confused, you are perfectly asleep, you are perfectly intoxicated. There is a perfect state of thatness that pertains to that state, and that thing is as much a pure natural fact as anything else in your life. And right. it's and if you were trying to go around being all mindful and shit, and you're trying to, you know, like, oh, I'm trying to pare away the distractions and so on, you're making distinctions, you're picking and choosing, and you're actually getting further away from the very thing you're trying to find. Right. That being one of those slapstick things that happens to people on the spiritual path, the Alice in Wonderland thing are like, oh, the faster I'm running towards it, the faster it runs away from me. There are some people probably able to recognize the truth of what I'm saying. Certainly, I experienced this, and, I'm, and I know I'm not the only one. Yeah. This is, I, I've never liked that word, mindfulness, in that context. No,
0: mindfulness I like mindful uh, be mindful in like the British way sense like
1: yeah like mindful pay, attention. About,
0: pay attention to other people um, but yeah. to be full of mind in the way that, that like Advaita people are, want to be full of mind is not appealing to me there's a very fine line between being full of mind and being full of shit
1: <laughs> <laughs> oh let's put that on a t-shirt yeah <laughs> uh let's
0: just keep it rolling here number 21 yeah. i got oh this is a good one all the things we see when awake are death even as the things we see
1: in slumber are sleep oh yeah what the fuck does that mean i was reading that shortly before we started recording this and i was like i have no idea drawing a blank here i, I have a theory <laughs> or at least okay.
0: i can appropriate it to my to my own shit um Okay, what do we see when we're awake? We see the actual, what is actual, right? As opposed to what is, what is virtual, right? So we'll, let's just use that dichotomy, the actual and the virtual, which is something we get, I get from Bergson and Deleuze. So the actual is that which has come, become manifest in time. Boom, there it is. Oh, okay, it's an actual thing. It's an act, it's an event. The virtual is that which is purely potential, but is also part of the real I just started reading Bergson's book on dreams. It's really good. We should do an episode on it. It's a tiny little book lecture he gave mm. on dreams. I'm not finished yet, but what he's getting at in it, I think, is that when you dream, you let go. It's like if you're the organism that you are, the kind of cognitive organism that you are, like kind of like just made to survive and fight and flight and fight or flee or whatever, it dissolves, it dilates and all of a sudden time the past comes pouring in in these strange images like you basically sink into a deeper level of the real which is the virtual the past whereas when you're awake you're compressing and filtering the virtual into what is called the actual that little knife's point of time which is what's going on right now what you know what's happening at this moment and um so But these things are death because the actual is always passing. is always dying. You know, like nothing you see is lasting. It's always like everything you see is already past. So from the point of view of wakefulness, everything is death. Everything is passing away. But when you're sleeping, when you're dreaming, you're realizing that what is death, death in truth is sleep. And sleep is this infinite self-existence of the past in the virtual. (laughs) That's my theory. It's like, the, um, it's like you're, you're falling into the sea of images, which is the reality of soul. Like, out of the, the the immediate concerns of the present, you fall back into the ocean of being we're talking about, where everything just exists in this almost timeless
1: sense. I, uh, is this um, fragment 26 that you're talking about? 21. Oh, fragment 21? Yeah. Damn it. I was looking a- a- around my own copy, which unfortunately is on Kindle, and uh, I find Kindle incredibly clumsy to try and navigate through. So I have been able to find, uh, and everything's renumbered in my edition anyway, so I haven't been able to find the one that you're reading from, but I'm looking at another one of a similar thought, which I'm going to read. During the night, a man kindles a light for himself, just as when dead but alive, with sight extinguished, he contacts death. So when asleep but awake... With sight extinguished, he contacts sleep. Mm. And this seems to be part of a, a complex of fragments where he's sort of fascinated with, like, where do we go when we sleep? This is an aspect of Heraclitus' philosophy that Phil K. Dick was really fascinated by. He makes much of one of these fragments in Valis. And he's much struck by the idea that during the day, we inhabit a common world, but at night each of us turns into a private world of our own is it but though here, is
0: it though a private world of our
1: own but yeah yeah well that's an interesting question that's a genuinely an interesting question and and this seems to be a meditation on that during the night a man kindles a light for himself a light by which to see so yeah dead but alive with sight extinguished he contacts death what does that mean dead but alive just as when dead but alive, with sight extinguished, he contacts death. So when asleep but awake, with sight extinguished, he contacts sleep. This reminds me of a dream I had. A very short dream. Can I
0: tell it? Please. Okay. So I dreamt, this was years ago, I dreamt that I was in a, some kind of prison camp. And I was, there was a, a swimming pool and these bright lights on the ceiling lighting up this, this interior swimming pool. And I was placed along the side of this pool along with several other prisoners. So we were a whole row of us just uh, crouching beside the pool. And this officer of the camp was basically just walking down the line, shooting people in the back of the head, one after another. So I could, I could see like he was coming towards me. So I knew I was going to get shot as well. And then I thought, oh my God, this. And I remember becoming lucid like this dream has to end before he shoots me because if I die in a dream, I'll die for real. Finally, he came up to me and shot me in the back of the head and everything went dark. And all of a sudden in the darkness, I saw this light appear and it was like this blue deep light from the, from the bottom of the world and it was shining up, but it was illuminating all this stuff, all these shadows, like, like branches and algae and stuff in between me and the light that were below me. And it was lighting it up from within. And when you read that quote, I immediately remembered that dream that being is deathless, that death is more akin to sleep than what seems like death to us in our waking mind. That what happens when the organism dies is that the, the consciousness descends into other, other levels of being where there's other shit happening. And there's always a light, because the, the real light isn't the light by which we see nor even the light of reason by which we think, but this deeper light of, of the psyche that comes up from below.
1: I don't know. I, I love that image. Uh, yeah, that's beautiful. Yeah. Uh, you say so you challenge the idea like, well, is it true that we all turn in sleep to private worlds of our own? And that's an interesting challenge because, I mean, the common sense, from a common sense perspective, well, yeah, sure. Have you ever accidentally found yourself in someone else's dream? Oh. Maybe you have, but, but then you wouldn't know it, right?
0: There's has this great quote. He says, beware the other's dream because if you end up in another's dream, you're fucked. (laughs) And (laughs) he says, like, uh, dreams are... It's so weird that we're talking about this now, because just before we recorded this, I actually played this little clip from Deleuze to Leslie, because I was trying to understand, because I've been reading this dream book by Bergson, and I was trying to understand what Deleuze's ideas about dreams is, and it's very strange. What he says, basically, is that dreams are dangerous. Dreams are real. He says... A a, a little girl can be as innocent as can be, but when she starts to dream, she becomes a devourer. And he says the most dangerous thing is to be caught in someone else's dream. So So that's actually really
1: a good point. Yeah. I mean, because you think of the kind of uh, random cruelty and violence and horror that often happens in our dreams. Of course, that's not the only thing that happens in dreams, but but the totally unpredictably horrible things that can happen in dreams. Yeah, God help you if you stray into a world like that and you're just one of the figurants. You're just like a walk-on character. You're not like the storyteller.
0: Because anything
1: could happen to you. Probably something horrible will.
0: There's a, a spectrum here, an ontological kind of question that we could definitely it would need its own episode but about dreams like the purely from the purely private dream to the big dream that has social significance to the tribe or whatever right so those big dreams are not just private events they're public events that occur to one person but then they need to be shared Uh, And then going into other phenomena, sleep phenomena, like, for example, like sleep paralysis, which we've talked about, or out-of-body experiences, or astral projection, right? Or lucid dreaming. Dreams are, are private, in a sense... But also maybe they're more porous than we think. I've always had this pet theory that when you see, you know, when you dream of people you've never seen, you know, I'm not dreaming of my wife, I'm dreaming of this guy that I'm, it's like, he's as real as anybody I've ever met, but I've never seen this person in real life. I've always had this. In fact, often the dreams you have about people
1: you've never seen before are the most real ones.
0: Right. And I've always had this pet theory that those are other dreamers. You know? Oh, what a cool idea! And I don't know. And then, now I'm reminded of Neil Gaiman's uh, series of comics, The Sandman. Ah, right? uh, Which... yeah, I think in the yeah. same thing because there's right. an
1: episode where um, they're deciding who is going to be the next person to own Hell to to like rule Hell. Yeah. And and so they have a banquet at Lord Morpheus's palace or his castle, mm-hmm. and they conscript ordinary human beings who are dreaming to be the foot servants. Exactly. And so they have a dream that they are at this banquet and the the devil is there and the Lord of Dreams and all these fairies and like weird creatures. That actually is true. And they just wake up and you know, they're just going to wake up and be like, whoa, what a weird dream.
0: Yeah. Well, the idea of the the astral plane, the idea of planes to begin with, we talked about a little bit about this in the Dungeons and Dragons episode. I, I would have wanted to get more into it. Maybe we will some other time. But the idea of planes of existence, this kind of theosophical idea from the 19th century, uh, that there are, and it's a, it's a basically a Buddhist Tibetan idea, right? The bardo's, these other planes of being, uh, the ethereal plane, the astral plane, and that dreaming is basically the dilation of the self in such a way that it gains this dream body that can explore the ethereal or the astral. That can sound pretty crazy, but it's, it's got immense explanatory power, right? It's not something we can just throw in the garbage. There may be something to that. And, uh, yep. and and maybe that's a little bit what Heraclitus is getting at
1: sometimes when he talks about sleep and death and soul, right? I'll tell you one thing that suggests to me that maybe there is something to this idea that those, those worlds we turn to in our sleep are maybe not quite so private as we might think, is a phenomenon of what I call the dream city And perhaps you've had a similar experience. I don't know. Um, We've never talked about this. And perhaps some of our listeners have had this experience. I've had dreams for years now, years. I don't remember when they started, but they, I mean, they started years and years ago. Um, And these are dreams that take place in the same city. Like, this is a city that has regular landmarks. Those landmarks sometimes correspond partially to places that I know, that I've lived in. The geography of the dream city doesn't remain static, but there are certain relations, there's certain places or features that recur. Again, there's an arcade, there's a bookshop. The bookshop is really important in my dreams. Um, I can't believe I'm just like sharing all of this stuff with uh, total strangers, but whatever. Um, (laughs) Welcome
0: to podcasting. Yeah, I know. It's just
1: like... It's weird when you think about it. (laughs) It is. It's very weird when you think about it. Um, But even though these landmarks kind of morph and blend and they they move around, there is a persistent sense of geography. I used to keep a dream journal and I've kept some notes about this geography. But the reason I'm talking about this is because if you have this idea that we tend to have as moderns, that dreams are just kind of, you know garbage. It's like the brain taking out the trash at night. Your brain fills up with miscellaneous things, and then when you sleep, your brain kind of clears away the trash and gets itself ready for a fresh day of new things coming in, right? Very functionalistic, rational explanation for why dreams happen. And no doubt there is some function of that in dreams. I'm not negating scientific explanations of dreams. I just want to say that there's more to it than that, surely, that it's not only that because I think there are a lot of dreams, maybe the preponderance of dreams that really are of the taking the trash out to the curb variety. But some dreams aren't. The taking the trash out to the curb kind of dreams, those don't repeat. Those don't have like a feeling of meaningful repetition. They just, they do repeat things. They repeat motifs from our life. But as such, they just kind of pop up in response to whatever's going on in our lives. They don't belong to a durable landscape. They're just reactions of our unconscious mind. Right. But what I'm talking about with this dream city is a durable landscape. It's a place I return to and have been returning to for years. It's a place that even there are times when I'm in the dream city where I'm like, ah, back here again. Yeah. Obviously it's my dream city. I would be astonished if I discovered there was somebody else who had a dream city that had a similar geography, But at the same time, the dream city isn't simply a function of whatever I'm thinking at a given moment in time. It's durable. It's a place I return to. And therefore, it has an element of commonness. It is common to me and other versions of me at other times in my life. Mm -hmm. Maybe I should say our life. Right. Does this make (laughs) any sense? Oh, yeah. It's it's, It's like a little breach in the wall of what dreams are supposed to be capable of. A dream is just supposed to be this hermetically self-enclosed thing that doesn't refer to anything outside of itself except whatever contingencies in your day caused the dream to emerge at that particular moment in time. But the fact that this is a world that I can return to and it changes, like the bookshop I was talking, it's a used bookstore in my dream, and it has changed over the years. And the last time I was there, I was in it and it had gotten all spiffy, it had gotten kind of bougie. It used to be this really dank kind of warehouse space, and then it's like this beautiful space with all glass-fronted walnut-carved bookcases and so on. And I was really pissed because I was like, "Well, this looks pretty, but like, the old, the, where are all the books?" You know. Right. <laughs> Although <laughs> I remember, I remember that vast dank warehouse space, the endless corridors of books. That was the most fucking awesome thing ever. And now I'm in this boutique with a carefully curated selection in my dream. I'm pissed because I can remember when I was there before and I'm like, well, this place isn't the same at all anymore. Yeah. Yeah. I don't know. Maybe that's not weird at all, but to me, I've never figured out. I, you know, I I have only my own experiences. I've never figured out what that's all about. You know, you're, you're pointing to an,
0: an important aspect of dream that any theory of dreams that's worth it's the name, uh, would have to take account of, which is that there's a continuity in dreams from dream to dream that, immediately throws doubt on a theory as as sad as the one that it's just like your brain like organizing shit that there's like, you you can have you can have dreams and set in the same place over time and in fact things can evolve over time and, and characters can recur in dreams at least they have in mine, and also like i've had a few experiences one that came to mind as you were describing this is i i have this there's this warehouse that i dream of sometimes and um Within this warehouse, there's... I've had a few dreams of this place. There is a structure within it, like scaffolding, okay? Like this complicated, maze-like, vertical structure within the warehouse. And I often might find myself floating about in there. And I had this one very, very vivid, lucid dream where I was stuck in that structure and being followed by what I knew to be my doppelganger. And I knew that if I were to see my doppelganger, that something really bad would happen. Anyways... My daughter had a dream last year, and she starts describing the, the setting of the dream, and I'm like, "Holy shit!" She's like, "It was like this big warehouse," she says, and there was a there was like a p- big, big play structure within it, and there were all these passages. She's describing the the same fucking Whoa. place, yeah. It was really weird, and she wrote it. She she keeps a dream journal, and I, I reread it with her a few days ago. Strangely enough, so. I'm I mean obviously agnostic as everybody everybody is ultimately about the nature of dreams but I think that dreams are much much more mysterious than we tend to think you know in one way they're the most commonplace throwaway thing and in another sense they're the most mysterious thing imaginable and again it's like Dick's thing like truth reveals itself at the trash stratum well dreams are like the trash of life in a way but maybe that's where the treasure is hidden enjoyed this episode consider subscribing to weird studies on itunes stitcher or google play you can also find us on twitter and facebook music for the podcast is composed and performed by pierre yves martel thank you for listening